Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, July 15th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, July 18th, 2021. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, ladies? I'm hiding from the heat, as always, (laughs) as much as I can. Trying to hide from that Delta variant, too. That is um, a little scary. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've felt better, but I'm not that bad. So I could complain, but I won't. Well, I'm sending you good vibes, Jasmine. And Emily, you stay protected, girl, because we need you around here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so on this week's episode, we'll be discussing the rise of crime and gun violence in New York City, unrest in South Africa, the Texas Democrats that fled the state, and a good news story about reframing our view of the future of the planet. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with local news. And I have drawn this story from um, a few different articles, one specifically um, on ABC7NY.com and a few other places. The title of this article is Another NYC Murder as NYPD Battles Ongoing Violence and Gang War. State and local leaders are growing more desperate to find a way to curb the deadly violence after another Yet another night full of murder on Thursday as the escalating toll from the summer shootings continued to rise. A 25-year-old man was shot in the head early Thursday at College Avenue and East 167th Street in the Bronx. Meanwhile, the cops are still trying to make arrests in an ongoing gang war that killed 13-year-old Jarvin Elliott on Sunday. Police say they've got a gang war on their hands that's taking the lives of teenagers all over the city. Police Commissioner Dermont Shea appeared on TV calling on more to be done about the surge of these gang shootings. He said, quote, we've had a bad run right now in the Bronx specifically with gang violence involving young kids. This is what literally, this is what keeps me up every night. It kept me up last night. What are we going to do about this? The de Blasio administration says that they are trying to do something and the NYPD is adding more police officers to the streets this weekend. So Mayor de Blasio has reacted to these proposed plans. He says, the more aggressive they can be, the more they can beef up all efforts of the ATF. Disrupt gun shipments into the city, every single step helps. I mean, look, there are too many guns right here, right now, but if they're not being replenished constantly, it would it would help us immensely. The mayor shifted $1 billion out of the police budget a year ago, but this year has put 200 million back. The NYPD now stands at 35,000 officers, far more than any other city, the largest force in the country. Um, And many people, Giuliani, as well as Governor Cuomo and the potential mayor, um, Eric Abrams, have been talking all, Eric Adams, have been talking all week um, on different news outlets about how this um, allocation should be handled. As for the federal stimulus money going to hire more officers, the mayor has used it for other community-based programs to fight crime and not for more manpower. As for the likely next mayor, Eric Abrams is weighing in on the issue, chastising the mayor, saying that he has not visited the Bronx and paid any special attention to the borough. He's also saying that the way that he is using the federal stimulus money is not the best way that he can handle the situation. He says, I would have accepted it. We could ensure that we could put more officers in those areas that are really dealing with this gang crisis that we have in the city. So, yes, 
I'm going to be visiting the Bronx and I think the mayor should go up there and show a real signal to the residents that we're not going to allow the Bronx to go backwards. The number of shooting victims in the Bronx is up 65% from this time last year. Citywide data shows crime is spiking with murders up 5% compared to 2020. Shootings are up 29% driven by the crime wave in the Bronx where murders are up 40%. So that's 20 more homicide victims than we had last year during this time. And the shootings are up a staggering 74% in um, New York City as a whole. So overall, um, that is the recap of what's going on. There's a lot of back and forth about the allocation of the funds, if the services that the mayor is trying to fuel are really helping. Um, I personally have not heard or seen any of these specific uh, smaller whether they're local organizations or programs uh, to really address what's going on with the summer youth, the summertime, you know, there's a lot of youth out, they're out of school, there's nothing to do. And of course, those cities opening back up. But it seems, you know, because of these stats, that during the pandemic, the rise in the amount of guns on the streets has been astronomical. Yeah, um, really scary, for sure. I had a number of thoughts on it. Um, I think you're, you're totally right about the rise in violence, you know, directly correlating to the um, absence of uh, programs, I think, for youth out there. Um, obviously, not the only sole cause, but I think that spike in that um, the lack of resources in a lot of ways, I think we, we've seen can lead to um, issues like this, you know, it, it all these things have systemic roots that are much bigger than just um, what they are on the surface. Um, and I think it's, so it doesn't really surprise me that like, you know, the pandemic exacerbated all of those things um, in a big way. It's just, it's frightening and it's sad and it's scary. Yeah. What I was going to say is I think, and I'm not saying it in any way to diminish like what families have to deal with, like when they are the ones who, you know, have lost someone to this type of violence. And I'm not saying that the violence isn't real, but you can see a lot of different conflicting statistics about whether or not crime is up or down. And then there's also people's perception can change over time. So like you'll read one report that's basically saying, you know, crime was at one level in the 90s. That's way more than what it is now. But, you know, someone might perceive it like from last month to this month, like the percentage has gone up. While you were reading the story, it's like I I was just Googling and it's like not offshoot Facebook posts or whatever, but like newspapers will have different things. Like one is saying that crime is down over last year. And then the next thing you read is saying it's up a hundred and something percent. You know, I just I worry about the way that these statistics can be manipulated to bolster claims that like we need more police or that they need more resources when the NYPD already has a bigger budget, I think, than some countries. It's it's just alarming, like not just the actual violence, but the way that whatever violence does exist can flip into like fear mongering and just justifying more like brutality or crackdowns instead of investment. That's a good point. Definitely. That's why I was saying that, you know, I personally haven't really heard or seen um, any summer youth programs really being promoted or offered 
Um, I know that obviously a lot of people lost their jobs during the pandemic and I'm sure, you know, the youth, the teenagers, that, that portion of our uh, society probably weren't able to, you know, hop back into another job so quickly because there's so many other people, older people with families who may be a little bit more mature that have taken those positions. Um, and so I know that historically in the summertime, there's always more violence in the city. Um, one, one report that I read, um, you know, Cuomo said that New York has become a lawless city and people come here, you know, anticipating breaking the law or doing whatever they want. He was alluding to the fact that, you know, we have so much freedom that people just disobey the law. And I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I think uh, there's been a lot of changes that happened over the last year, but specifically gun violence, um, it always happens in New York City. It never really goes down to my understanding. And there's a lot of different factors for that as well. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember specifically um, last year during this time with the fireworks that ran rampant all over New York City and it was like going off for a month. Uh, I always wonder where that came from. I remember that. Yeah, that's dangerous as well. So I don't necessarily think that, you know, there's a lot of issues with how guns get into the hands specifically of teens. Uh, But it is very scary what's really happening out there, not just in our city, but across the the U.S. Jasmine, I want to address again what you said about how numbers and facts can be manipulated. And I think that was really interesting and really important. And we do talk about that on the show um, occasionally. Maybe we should talk about it even more because... It also will relate to the good news story I have at the end of the show about how we do often, you know, like um, a journalism, a journalistic outlet will, you know, interpret facts one way and create sort of a message about those facts. And then that message will be taken as like the truth and, and nothing but the truth. And that is the truth and will be repeated over and over and over again. And how human interpretation can change how we view facts for sure. And I think that's really interesting and important to remember the relativity of those things. I think a lot of times like there's not enough questioning of police sources in particular because a lot of outlets will take what cops say at face value. And there's also controversy over like when police officers themselves are involved in some type of crime, those not being like counted in the stats. I don't know. It's like there's definitely every summer, like Teresa was saying, like with the heat and like it's only going to get worse as it gets hotter. There's always like a surge. But I really worry, especially with this new mayor, that, you know, the solution always seems to be to bolster the most violent or repressive type option. And there's not enough trying to get like what the root cause of the issues is like that always seems to be like the afterthought. And I, you know, I just don't know. Like guns, gun violence is extremely worrisome in this country in particular. It's so out of control. And even if you were to, like there's the NRA lobby, but then there's also all this shit with like people can make a 3D print guns and stuff like that. Like how would you even regulate that type of thing if someone's just determined? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Definitely have to be careful of the source of information that you receive. Um, And, and, you know, what you believe as well, because the media does have a specific purpose, um, not just about police stats and things of that nature, but also about the people that they're talking about as well. So that's definitely a good point. 
Um, and I just hope that, you know, it, because it's affecting the youth in the Bronx, that there is um, just other things, other outlets, other opportunities being created for them so that they can have choices and just, you know, feel protected overall, because that's an ongoing systemic issue that maybe is one of the causes of why we go through this all the time, but definitely uh, something to be on the lookout for and just to be mindful about um, while you're out in the city this summer. All right. So we're going to go ahead and take our first music break. Um, This song, I believe it just came out and I thought I'd give you a little New York flavor. So this song is by Jennifer Lopez and Raw Alejandro and it's called Cambia El Paso. We'll be right back. Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Pharmagear, offering little or no cost medical braces. For more information is available at 844-598-6639. And now we'll bring up Emily to the mic with our national news story. Alrighty. So uh, this story comes from a July 12th New York Times article by Reed J. Epstein and Nick Corasaniti. Uh, titled Texas Democrats Flee State to Highlight GOP Voting Restrictions. Uh, The article explains, quote, Texas Democrats fled the state on Monday in a last-ditch effort to prevent the passage of a restrictive new voting law by the Republican-controlled legislature, heading to Washington to draw national attention to their cause. Uh, Enough state House Democrats have left the state, quote, to prevent Texas Republicans from attaining a quorum which is required to conduct state business. Uh, The hastily arranged departure added a cinematic element to the partisan wrangling in a state with a colorful political history. Democrats have fled to neighboring states in the past to try to block legislation, including in 2003, when they traveled to New Mexico and Oklahoma in an effort to avoid Republican attempts to redraw congressional, congressional districts. The move could paralyze the legislature for weeks if Democrats remain out of state until this special session ends in August. 
Still, it lays bare their limited options long-term in a legislature where the Republicans hold the majority in both chambers. Parliamentary procedures and efforts to add amendments can delay the process but not derail it. Uh, a July 13th Times article by Edgar Sandoval uh, states that the bill in question, quote, includes restrictions on absentee voting and bans 24-hour and drive-through voting, uh, which drew millions of voters in Democratic strongholds across the state in November. Uh, and moving forward for my story, I'm going to be flipping between those two articles I reference. Um, the bill would also, quote, add new voter identification requirements for voting by mail, increase the criminal penalties for election workers who run afoul of regulations, and greatly expand the authority and autonomy of partisan poll watchers. Over the weekend, the Texas House and Senate, both controlled by Republicans, advanced legislation out of committee to the full chamber after marathon sessions that, in the case of the House, lasted nearly 24 hours. GOP leaders plan to move toward a final vote starting Tuesday, um, which would have been a few days ago as of recording. Uh, quote, Governor Greg Abbott has vowed that the Democrats who absconded will face reprimands, telling Fox News, once they step back into the state, they will be arrested and brought back to the Capitol and we will be conducting business. On Tuesday, the Texas House voted to issue arrest warrants to compel the lawmakers to return to Austin. Democrats so far have not budged. Those who flew on, a char on chartered planes to Washington signaled that they would remain there until the special session concludes. Uh, so while Democrats cannot legally be forced to return to Texas, they will need to return eventually. Um, it's where their lives are based, after all. And, quote, once they are back in the state, lawmakers can pass resolutions to fine the Democrats for every day they were gone. And they could also take away privileges, such as parking spaces. Um, uh, if they are arrested when they return, they will be brought to Capitol grounds. So um, my understanding from the articles I read is that it's not a jailable offense uh, necessarily. Quote, for the Democrats, political observers say, fleeing the state on Monday was more about taking a political stand than bringing Republicans around to their way of thinking. Julian Castro, Castro a, a Democrat who was President Barack Obama's housing secretary and a former mayor of San Antonio, said the party's uh, best bet at this point is to push uh, congressional Democrats to pass national voting laws that would do away with many of the restrictions being considered in Austin. Congress is locked in a fight over the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, both of which would seek to strengthen voting protections nationwide. Indeed, quote, by traveling en masse uh, to Washington, the Texas Democrats were hoping to apply pressure to Democrats in the U.S. Senate, who so far have been unable to pass federal legislation to address the issue. Because when it comes to the Texas bill, ultimately, as Republican State Representative Briscoe Kane said, um, is quoted as saying, it's just delaying the inevitable. Uh, we will eventually get it done, this special or another. Uh, and a little bit more additional context on this story, quote, over the past several months, Democrats across, across the country have been grappling with one of the most sweeping contractions uh, of voting access in, gener in generations. Republican-controlled legislatures in more than 14 states have passed election laws that include broad new restrictions to voting. Um, so yeah, some more... Um, an interest, I think the word cinematic was was used in one of the Times articles, and I really, when I saw that headline, felt that way as well. Um, the cinematic twist to a story that's um, we've been talking about on the show, the restrictions on voting access that, you know, Republican strongholds across the country are like racing to get through after the 2020 election. And uh, yeah, scary stuff.
How is it okay that they just run away from their job? Did I misunderstand? It's like a protest thing. They they left like so that they wouldn't have a quorum to be able to pass. Mm-hmm. Like so, when right. you have a court, like I think that that is like that was the point. Like they were trying to stop the Republicans okay. from being able to get away with this. Mm-hmm. Like they were trying to call national attention. Right. to like what the Texas Republicans were trying to do cuz had mm-hmm. they stayed there would have they would have been able to like continue the session and probably like get this stuff to pass cuz they're mm-hmm. in the minority. Okay, that's so but that, that's so awful that you have to mm-hmm. that that's, you know, I understand why and I get it, but it's just so awful that we can't I don't know that there's yeah. no other solution like that's the only fucking choice, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's reminiscent of, like, filibuster stuff that happens where people will just talk for 13 hours to keep stuff from happening. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah. like, a more extreme version of that, it feels like. And it's, like, you your, your options are increasingly limited, like, when you are not, like, when you're in the minority. Like, you can't depend on the majority of the people around you, like, agreeing with what you think, so whether it's Republicans knowing that they're losing like the demographic battle in the country. And so they're doing, they're lashing out and trying to restrict voting access to make up for that. Or like in this case, like the Democrats in this situation are a minority of the elected officials. So like they have to try to do something drastic because actually trying to convince the other side of what you want, it's not, I feel like at this point it's just not feasible because every it's so like deeply entrenched that they're going to do what they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I understand. I'm just, you know, I think it was more of a rhetorical thing. Like Mm -hmm. it's so awful that we can't have a fucking like real conversation about real shit instead of people being in, in position to leave people out like intentionally. It's just, it's awful. Yeah, and we've been seeing this stuff for years at this point. I mean, when Obama um, wanted to, when Obama was, it, it was his turn to elect another or appoint another uh, Supreme Court justice, right? The Republicans were just like, no, we're just not going to do it, right? So we've been, this has been like, I mean, I, my perspective has been, it's been a Republican led effort to just like, you know, t- take down like a, functioning government here and there just to get what they want um, for like a couple of decades at this point. Um, and of course, I, I guess I'm biased. I don't know. But um, the Democratic and then this is like the Democrat, you know, response. This is all they can do sometimes. Um, but it, it seem, it does seem to mirror that sort of that action. But, it, but you know, like ultimately, like the goal is to have everyone talk to each other and reach a middle ground, right. That benefits everyone as much as possibly can, but we're, you know, we're in this place where everyone it's, it's this ideological holding pattern on the right, at least where it's, you know, it's our way or the highway to get really cliched about it. And it's, uh, it sucks. Yeah. And I don't even really know because with a lot of things, there isn't really much of a middle ground. Like if their right. yeah. point of view is that they only want a certain type of person who's right. eligible to vote for those votes to count and for those votes alone to count, it's very difficult to get someone like that to change their mind, especially if they were elected or put into place or kept in place because they're going to hold that line. 
So I don't really, I'm not saying anyone like was doing this on the show, but I do feel like it's, you can't really compare like when someone is like, I don't want people to have access to like reproductive healthcare mm-hmm. or something. And they're holding up sessions to people realizing like how desperate of a, a situation like access to the ballot is and like taking drastic measures to try to protect it. Cause right. like it would be, you know, it's like they they would in theory be helping people be able to vote like regardless of who they might vote for and like the republicans are willing to cut people out of you know being able to vote on the assumption of what it would mean to expand it to more people like it's right and i, I didn't mean yeah i'm being arrested like I, when i saw the governor like making those comments it was just very eerie and there were you know black legislators that were arrested today i doubt he had that energy for people from his state that were storming the capitol yeah and i i didn't mean to imply it was a mirror image i think i might have even used that word i think it's it's that sort of well if you do this it only leaves us with this next option right it's it's an escalation i think and it's um I, I agree that there's false equivalencies that can be thrown around and I didn't mean to do that on like on, on terms of what each side is standing for more just of the actual like literal actions that like the Republican, what yeah. has to be done. Right. Exactly. And the right. The, the extremities that you have to go to if the other side is pushing it that far. Yeah. Well, I appreciate Obviously, I appreciate these extreme measures that are being taken because that's, you know, that's what we have to do. It's and it's if I feel like without talking about these things, you know, come November, everybody's going to be like, what the fuck happened? And nobody's going to know that this shit was just going on this whole time. You know, you was having your hot girl summer. They was over here plotting, you know, for the coldest winter ever <laughs> legitimately through these strategies. So um, I do appreciate the effort. I just think you know, human decency should just be more important to people than this, but we got to do what we got to do, man. Yeah. I really do think that it highlights also the, like the way that um, people will talk about states' rights versus federal, like how vulnerable people are around the country. Like if your ability like to exercise basic rights is just at the whim of people in your state, like it's very you could really feel like you're living in a whole other country depending on what section of the country you're in. And it seems like there's a lot of people that are pushing heavily to keep it that way. You know, it's like the version, like your history books will look totally different. Whether or not, you know, the way that you're able to vote will look very different. You know, they put out recently, I think starting in September, like they want it where like you can get $10,000 or something if you snitch on a person who got an abortion or someone that helped someone get an abortion in Texas, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like to someone who might live in a different state, like that's incomprehensible, but you know, when it's so fractured, like it is like you could be living in a whole different planet. It seems like depending on what piece of the country you're in. Wow. That was a really important story. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, Jasmine, why don't you go ahead and take us in a break? Yeah, you do it so well every week. I kind of forget what I have to do to go into the next segment, but I'll just wing it. So (laughs) the the next segment is going to be world news. Um, And before we get into that, we have another music break. Um, This song is by Zenzile Miriam Makeba, 
who was a South African uh, singer and also anti-apartheid activist and human rights activist more generally. Uh, and I will let you listen to her introduce the song. Uh, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and we'll be back. We thank you so much. Our next song is another song from the trans sky. We up here call it Click Song Number Two. <laughs> but actually, the title is Bakabene Otam. It's a, it's a debate between two of the original people of my country, South Africa, an African, this time, Tosa, and a Bushman, whom we Tosas refer to as Ikaya. <laughs> it's often said that when the settlers first came to our country, we were not there. But I say, it isn't so. <laughs> I know we were there, and the song was sung in those days, during the days of our very good king of the Tausas, better known as Infa Kanaika. who, like many, tried to defend the country. I'll sing the song with a smile, mainly because the Tosa wins in the debate, but most of all, because it's quite amazing that up until this day, the settlers still can't say, and all that. I can let Oh, 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 oh,
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll go into our international news segment. Jasmine, you're up. The title of the main article I'm going to be reading to you today is Little to Lose, Poverty and Despair Fuel South Africa's Unrest. Um, This was written by South Africa-based journalist Nikolaus Bauer. Um, And it appears on Al Jazeera, in Al Jazeera. Uh, So South Africa is facing its worst unrest in decades as protests over the jailing of former president Jacob Zuma have led to spiraling violence and looting. At least 72 people have died in six consecutive days of violent clashes between police and protesters and in stampedes by looting mobs. More than 1,200 people have been arrested so far. What initially started as a protest against the jailing of Zuma on Friday for contempt of court has mushroomed into grievances over inequality and poverty that have rocked the country. So I'm going to back up and just, this is some background about former South African President Jacob Zuma. He was, um, he fought against apartheid as a young man and was jailed for 10 years in 1963. Um, He was exiled in 1975 and became the spy master of the African National Congress and returned to South Africa in 1990, became the president in 2009. But since becoming the president, um, there's been a lot of accusations of uh, corruption that he's um, dealt with. He had also been charged with raping a family friend, but was acquitted of that in 2006 in what was a deeply polarized trial. And now, like, he had been in prison, he had been put in prison for being in contempt of court for not appearing um, to trial over, like, new corruption allegations. So that's a little bit about Jacob Zuma from the BBC. Um, President Cyril Ramaphosa has deployed 2,500 soldiers to Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal, the two provincial epicenters of the unrest to aid police that have been largely outnumbered and unable to deal with the unfolding chaos. Communities left behind in the world's most unequal society feel angered by the system and are lashing out. Professor Msibisi Endotiana, a political analyst, told Al Jazeera, this anger has been bubbling below the surface for decades and we might be experiencing a revolution of the poor that is being taken advantage of by criminals who benefit from the revolt and unrest. Thousands of businesses have been ransacked or forced to close their doors for fear of violence. We are not open because we will be looted of equipment that took us decades to afford, and my staff of 14 must stay at home until it's safe. Humphrey Jeffries, uh, which is a pseudonym, owner of a trucking components business in the Johannesburg Central Business District, told Al Jazeera. After 48 years of being in business, we face the real prospect of layoffs and even closure now. We managed to get through the initial COVID-19 madness of lockdowns, but this is too much now. So far, 200 malls and shopping centers countrywide have been forced to close by the violence, with everything from food supplies and medicines to flat screen TVs and clothing being carried off during the looting. 
People started breaking into shops and stealing because we want former President Jacob Zuma released, Mizizi Kosa, one of the protesters, told Al Jazeera. But even if the president does do that, looting will carry on because we are hungry too and need things to survive. The South African economy has rebounded somewhat since the onset of COVID-19, with gross domestic product growth predicted to be up to 3.1% in 2021 by the nation's treasury. But unemployment has grown to more than 32% in a society classified as one of the most unequal in the world, with the Gini coefficient of 63 and more than half the population living in poverty. Um, And just a side note about that, uh, I think most people are aware of generally like what apartheid was. Um, It was the official government policy of having like different laws, different access for different people in South African society with white people at the top and black people at the bottom. Uh, There were four main categories, which were white, Asian, colored, which meant like mixed race and black. Uh, And according to CNN, and this is from 2019, more than half of South Africa's population, or 55.5%, live in poverty, or less than $83 a month. And of that half of the people in poverty in the country, 64% of them are Black, 41.3% of them are colored or mixed race, 5.9% are Indian or Asian, and only 1% are white. So even though, you know, South African um, apartheid technically has fallen, like as far as the material conditions of the people, like it's still deeply, deeply, deeply unequal. Okay, so back to the Al Jazeera article. The country's economic recovery has also been compromised by yet another lockdown as South Africa battles a third wave of the coronavirus that has seen more than 2,500 deaths in the past week alone. People are under a lot of pressure and crime and lawlessness has always been a risk in the South African economy, economist Zanti Payi told Al Jazeera. But this kind of instability cripples any attempt to reconstruct this economy for the benefit of all and the poorest of the poor will lose the most from this, with more job losses and government finances unable to support people joining the poverty line. Uh, So there's a little more um, to the article, but you can read the rest of it on Al Jazeera. Again, the title is Little to Lose, um, and it was written by Nicholas Bauer. So yeah, there's... um, there's also a online magazine called New Frame that has a lot of very in-depth essays and articles about the conditions, like what's happening in South Africa right now that I think would be um, useful for people to understand better and more deeply what's going on. Um, but it's a, it's a very sad and unsettling situation. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing that story. And South Africa is such a wonderful place um, just because I've been there, but I can definitely see while I was there, while, you know, it was great to enjoy, I can definitely see how there are, there's an ebb and flow of unrest. You know, sometimes it's calm, but many times it's traumatic and dramatic and the way 
that the government intercedes on life, the restrictions they cause, and then what happens in a transition in power, how resources are wildly distributed and people don't have access to what they need. They're still fighting for ownership to their land and their communities. Um, And it, it just seems like to spiral, you know, every couple of months that they just go through so much trying to find an equilibrium. But um, obviously with a history like apartheid, equilibrium is really fucking hard to find. I mean, as close as, as, as similar as it is to racism, it comes with other elements um, about land ownership and, you know, just the right to be the only place you can go. I mean, it's, it's, it's just really troubling every time I see things happening there because it's, the problems are so complex. Yeah. And I'm, I'm far from an expert, um, in South African history or, or politics, but um, what I do know, <laughs> and I do remember from from school, is um, you know all the issues again rooted back to colonialism. Um, you know, apartheid is like rooted in colonialism, adding an additional layer um, to their history, of course. But um, you know, this sort of unrest is like this worldwide pattern that we see over and over again. Um, the disruption. Um, that lasts for centuries. I don't want to say no end in sight, but it's like these ongoing issues that, um, you know, who knows who has a solution for them. But, um, you know, that history is uh, is touched like every place on the planet almost. Yeah, and I also, I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, like when you have that, large of like when you have that many people that are in a situation where they're literally starving you have to keep that in mind like when you see news stories and things that are talking about looters and criminals and it's like yes like whenever things like this happen like there are people that act in a way that is taking like taking advantage of the unrest but there's so many other people that are literally just, they're desperate, you know? So framing it as, you know, a matter of criminality and that alone is such a big problem. And that some of the um, other essays I was reading were describing how conflating like the large scale unrest that you see all being because of um, ex-president Zuma being arrested isn't really accurate either because that can be like the spark or the tipping point, but there's all these other issues that are going on at the same time. Um, And I'll put up the link on our Facebook page so that um, our audience can read it. But there was one writer who was describing how like on top of people looting like shopping centers and um, food markets, there's also like coordinated attacks against um, infrastructure in South Africa that is not about like getting food, but it's very obvious that you have certain elements that are trying to take advantage of heightened insecurity and people being afraid for their own political ends. And then you have all these other people that have been dealing with chronic unemployment, not having enough food, racism, police violence, and them acting out against all of that that's been so built up is then being like put all in the same bubble like with these bad political actors which is something separate there's always so many people that are just trying to get to the next day 
um, that don't necessarily fit into what like a larger political narrative might be. Yeah, that's just the thing, right? Like when I was there, I, you know, had lots of experience. I traveled through the country. It was a couple years ago though. And I guess at the current time when I was there, it was more peace um, in the places that I went, right? Because it's a really big country. But just for example, um, I was there doing um, a partnership trip with my church. We have a partnership with a, um, a small school facility. It's kind of like a community center slash school um, in Pretoria, which is the capital. And it was like a hundred times different than our experience in Johannesburg, you know, like night and day far as uh, just access and resources. Um, and this is a, a organization that we've worked with quite a long time. Um, and so we've had a relationship and we take these trips a couple of times every year, every couple of years to help restore the building that the people are in um, that's offering these services to the community. And it's scary to think that there's so many people on that line of poverty that's unreal of what we would imagine in America, not to belittle the experiences of poverty of people in America because that shit get real too. But what I'm saying is it, the level of it is different. I, I, it just, it's alarming to think the lack of uh, consideration for something like a school um, where the community has to sustain it and sustain the people within it and just access to simple resources, books, clean water, uh, education to help educate the children is is a, such a different way of looking at things in a place where you know this for lack of better words this is your land this is where you're born this is the soil that your family is in um, so it's not like you have many options to go anywhere and people don't want to they're sustaining themselves because they have no choice so anytime there is unrest and violence it's like the people who are in poverty on the regular, their condition becomes even sadder because they're the last ones that anybody go to to assist on a regular basis. It's even further out from that. And then they have to wait. And then it's just all these things, all these layers for so many people. Um, the difference in, in you know access and the financial dis- difference between people, the wealth gap, is, is, is very hard to even understand what it is and, and who it's for, because it seems to be affecting every single person that is living there um, in multiple ways. So it's very disturbing. I mean, it, being in the city, even like you see, if you can imagine, like when you take the train, like from say the tip top of Manhattan all the way down, like through different types of neighborhoods, like you can see a difference between train stations and neighborhoods where there's been persistent like disinvestment redlining you know a lot of racist police and like if you can see that here some of these images that you see out of south africa like even like the aerial view of like a middle class neighborhood next to people living or having to live like in shacks it's so stark yeah that's what i'm talking about and it's like a lot of these places will have an image, especially for tourists and thing in like certain areas where it looks all nice or whatever. But then you have so many people that, you know, 
like the indigenous people of the land that have been there since forever. Right, right. A fraction of that. And it's, you know, it just, it hurts my heart because then you read about, oh, sending in the military, sending in this. And it's like the people that are already suffering the most now are the ones that end up bearing the brunt of that repression. And then you don't see a redistribution of the resources that would actually help them. So, you know, especially when if you get enough people to just see anybody like Black who's rebelling as like a danger, that's what it's like the answer just always ends up being like putting down like that rebellion instead of addressing like what is causing it. It's really, it's really stark, you know, even like the statistics, like that many people living on like $83 a month. It's just, it's so egregious. It really puts things in perspective. Life still goes on on $83 a month. It just really humbles you in a way that no no other experience can because the South African people that I met while I was there and the ones that I've met, you know, in New York are beautiful, brilliant, vibrant people. Um, They're so strong and just, they have a, a zest for life in my experience and it just, it just really turned me on my head about how to think about poverty in a global aspect and what that really means and how to exist. People exist strongly and have generations that exist like this for long periods of time. Um, yeah, quite alarming. I mean, I don't want to dissuade anyone from going to South Africa because it was an incredible experience, but it definitely gives you a different level of appreciation for a struggle. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Um, please make sure you continue to follow the story and learn um, about South Africa uh, and all the traditions and the history of this country. While it's tumultuous, it's still one of my favorite countries in Africa, and I love it to death. It's, I feel like I have a soul tie there, um, and I definitely want to go back and hope the best um, that solutions can be had and, and changes can be made to really help the people on the ground and, and all the generations there and after. All right. So Emily, you got some good news for us, girl. Yeah. So uh, I don't know about y'all, but the uh, the news about the weather and climate has been really fucking shitty um, yeah. this summer. Just gets shittier and shittier every summer. Um, so like last week, um, the good news I have this week is sort of like it's the soul sister of that um, other piece I did. Um, you know, I, I found this also while I was like panic doom scrolling about climate apocalypse, just like trying to find anything like like freaking out, um, anything to keep me from going over the edge. And this piece helped me um, was like was comforting and like helped me kind of restore that place of like, OK, no, like just keep doing the work. Um, so I want to preface it by saying that like part of the article will sound like there's a difference between climate change denial and then also and and then acknowledging that sometimes things are framed to be scarier than they are to inspire action. But unfortunately, it sometimes inspires like apathy because it's like, well, we're fucked. Um, so it's really it's about finding that place of acknowledging that things are bad, but that there's always room for better. So um this piece was published by The Atlantic on February 1st of this year. It's by Emma Mor- uh, Maris, who is an environmental writer who also volunteers uh, for a climate justice organization. 
It's titled Inevitable Planetary Doom Has Been Exaggerated. Hope for the Future is a Reasonable and Necessary Prerequisite for Action. Um, so here are some chunks that stood out to me the most. Um, quote, environmentalists are so good at emphasizing worst case scenarios that when we look to the future, apocalypse often feels inevitable. After all, aren't we in the sixth mass extinction? Haven't populations of wild animals already crashed by 60%? Don't we have just 10 years left to avert climate meltdown? Do we really dare to hope? Uh, yes, we do dare to hope. Looking at these problems from a distance, they seem like impenetrable mountainous barriers to a good future, but in every case, there is a path through. Uh, saving the planet can mean many things in practice, but one goal pretty much everyone shares is stopping extinctions. Elizabeth Colbert's uh, 2014 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, reported on scientists sounding the alarm about high extinction rates, and in the years that followed, the idea that we are in the midst of one of the planet's greatest mass extinction events has come to feel like a bedrock truth to many Rinis. This framing can make extinction feel like a force too huge and powerful to avert. That's just not true. As of today, according to the International Union, of Conservation, uh, International Union for Conservation of Nature's Red List, the conservation status of 128,918 species has been assessed. Of those, 902 have gone extinct since the year 1500. This is absolutely too many. Uh, one is too many. But to cause an extinction event on the scale of those seen millions of years ago, in which more than 75% of species disappeared, we would have to lose all our threatened species within a century and then keep losing species at that same super high rate for between 240 and 540 more years. In other words, the concept assumes that we won't save anything ever and that hundreds of years into the future, we will still be as inept at protecting biodiversity as we are now. You, must, uh, you might all have also heard that we've lost something like 60% of wild animals since the 1970s. Surely this suggests that a lot more extinctions are imminent. In 2018, The Atlantic's Ed Young helpfully explained that this study actually looked at the average decline of a given population, not species, of wild animal. So severe declines in small populations disproportionately increase the average decline. More recently, a new analysis of the data showed that indeed the 60% average decline was driven by very severe crashes in a very small number of vertebrate populations. For example, one small population of Australian waterfall frogs declined 99.5% over two years. This decline became one data point, which was averaged with 14,000 others, many from stable or increasing populations. Really less than 3% of vertebrate populations are crashing. Remove the, strong, the most strongly declining populations and the average would actually be growing slightly. This means that declines are not the rule everywhere. It means that the specific populations in crisis can be identified and helped. And we have the knowledge to save them, save them if we can marshal the will and resources. Um, and then another point the article makes, um, energy systems expert Jesse Jenkins, quote, rejects the idea that if we fail to keep warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius, the key target in an influential United Nations report, all is lost. Anytime you see a round number like 2.0 or 1.5 or 20% by 2020, that is a political number, he said. The reality is that every tenth of a degree matters. There is no threshold after which it is not worth fighting. One very good reason to feel overwhelmed is that everything seems screwed up at once. As a country, we're facing climate change, the pandemic, racial injustice, the threat of dangerous fascist elements, I could go on. 
Because climate change and extinction have been ongoing problems for as long as many of us can remember, feeling that they're impossible to engage with right now is only natural. But many of our problems are so thoroughly tangled up with one another that we may not need to fight uh, them separately. Environmental destruction disproportionately harms people of color and lower income people. And people of color are on average significantly more concerned about climate change than white people. A leading cause of inaction on climate change is the hoarding of power by some of the world's wealthiest people who profit from planetary destruction that they don't have to deal with personally. They can simply crank up the air conditioner, pay more for the last remaining champagne and oysters or fly to their New Zealand bunker so they have no incentive to change unsustainable systems that they benefit from. When political power is more fairly distributed, the environment will benefit. And finally, quote, there will be more crises, more setbacks, but there is no too late. In the longer term, we know what we need to do to stop climate change, save species, and make sure everyone breathes clean air and drinks clean water. Not everything can be saved, but 2021 can be better than 2020, and 2031 can be much, much better than 2021 if we demand it. And uh, yeah, for anyone who also panics about climate change, I hope, um, you know, this maybe made you feel a little more hopeful um, like it did for me. Thank you so much. That was a great story. Um, We have to have share good news because we need to know that the efforts that we're making are making a difference, even if it's just a little bit at a time. So I always appreciate hearing that and having a a turn of energy towards the end of the show because it's so necessary. So thank you so much for that, Emily. And I believe we are at the end. We did it. We made it, guys. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Objection to the Rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with a nice jazz record to end the week. This song is called Sunkissed Child, and it's by Kamanzi Washington. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Have a good one. Bye. you see and everyone